welcome to Environmental Laws, Thompson Hines Environmental Law Podcast. In each episode, you'll hear from subject matter specialists at Thompson Hines and sometimes special guests on current events and hot button issues in environmental law topics covering land, air, water, and safety, hence the laws. I'm Heidi Friedman, a partner in Thompson Hines Environmental and Product Liability Practice Groups and co-chair of our firm's ESG Collaborative. I was really excited to spend the last podcast talking to Joel Eagle about ESG, and today we get to drill into the next step, greenwashing. We are going to be discussing greenwashing today with my friend and colleague, Tanya Nesbitt. Hi, Tanya. Welcome. Hi, Heidi. So excited to be here to um, talk about one of my favorite topics. (laughs) (laughs) It is your favorite topic. You've been all over LinkedIn on this. I love reading your posts. So um, for the benefit of the audience, Tanya is an environmental partner who works from both our Atlanta and Washington, D.C. offices. Tanya has over a decade of litigation experience in private practice with the federal government. She is a nationally recognized litigator and I think recently a law dragon. So she is fierce. Tanya is co-chair of the Public Land and Resource Committee of the Section of Environmental, Energy, and Resources of the ABA, a member of the Environmental Institute's Wealth Steering Committee, D.C. chapter, and she is a um, very significant part of our environmental group here. So with that, why don't we get started, Tanya, and tell us a little bit about what greenwashing is and where that term was derived, because I think that's an interesting story. Sure. So I I guess the interesting part is that there is no uh, national or international consensus on what the term means. But we know that in the 1980s, uh, an environmentalist by the name of Jay Westerfield coined the term uh, because he was pissed off that the hotel industries. Uh, Save the Towel movement uh, was marketing itself as um, wanting to reduce environmental waste and water consumption. Uh, And I think he looked beyond that or past that and saw that they were more so interested in minimizing the cost of washing the towels. And so um, he felt that that was misleading and uh, coined the term greenwashing. And so uh, today, greenwashing uh, generally is used Uh, in reference to an entity misrepresenting um, an environmental benefit claim of one of its products um, or misrepresenting its ESG credentials. And so uh, some examples may be uh, marketing your product uh, as one that has no environmental impact um, or saying it has a positive environmental impact um, and uh, finding that there's um, either that's misleading um, or it's it contravenes uh, data that would substantiate a claim like that. Right. And those cases are just everywhere now. So as anticipated and expected as the ESG disclosures and goals and targets are being put out there by companies, it seems like the litigation is going to follow. But as companies really prepare to, you know, they want to meet their stakeholder um, demands and they really want to set ESG goals. And I know they really want to meet them. How can companies mitigate their risk to avoid a greenwashing claim? There has to be some things I'm guessing they can do to make sure that um, they're not in federal or state court somewhere trying to litigate one of these claims. 
Yeah, I, I think the important thing here to remember is that the risk uh, exists uh, for companies. We're seeing uh, now an, an, an uptick in suits against individual company directors. The risk exists for regulated utilities and uh, certainly governments as well. Um, and so we have to, to think more broadly um, about mitigation. I tend to think of uh, mitigation as both a defensive and, and offensive strategy. And so I think that, you know, there is um, an inertia sometimes that sets in where uh, companies may think, you know, let's just sit on the sidelines and see how things shake out uh, and not take action. And particularly in the greenwashing space, delaying or not taking action uh, is going to uh, potentially create liability. And, you know, this space is is messy. Uh, it's shifting day to day. But the best approach is to jump in and get dirty and begin doing the things that are going to uh, minimize risk. And so the first would be obviously to consult with legal counsel who can assist with the review of your advertising and marketing materials. And also don't forget your social media materials too, right? In this day and age, a lot of companies Absolutely. are doing uh, that type of advertising and making uh, these types of claims as part of that advertising. And so there is liability in those statements as well. Greenwashing mitigation also should be part of your regular auditing process and your due diligence that you would do for any other type of issue uh, that the company would ordinarily face. And so uh, there needs to be more integration in, in those uh, types of compliance programs and compliance function. Also, companies should think about how their product uh, is being sold and how it shows up to the consumer. You know, if it's showing up different than it leaves the factory, um, you need to think about that and, and, and think about uh, liability um, and how it may be presented if it's in plastic or, or other, other items, for example. And the other is obviously to, to speak the, the truth and the whole truth, right? So um, making sure that um, there are appropriate disclosures uh, for any of the claims um, that, that would give the consumer, I think, a fuller picture of, for example, what you may mean by, by zero waste to land for, for example, giving um, any sort of disclaimers if there's a portion of that waste, for example, that um, is, is being incinerated and um, thinking of it from, from that perspective, I think is certainly helpful. Right. It, the the footnotes become more and more important, and especially in public filings on your website and all of that. So, um, you know, what zero means to most people is zero. So if it's really not zero, we should just be clear about that. So exactly. those are those are definitely the kind of things. And, and then I'm going to take you back to one of the things you said, which is integrate with the compliance functions, which I certainly think is critical. Talk a little bit about how data collection can really help mitigate the risk further in terms of, you know, for every statement folks put out, that's certainly what we do with our ESG reviews as well, is make sure, my question is always, do you have data to back this up? Do you have data to back this up? Talk a little bit about how that can be collected and maintained to protect you, protect the company. Certainly. So I think uh, data plays a, a critical role, um, both in your offensive and defensive strategy. And so offensively, you're going to use it to substantiate your claims and also determine where perhaps, you know, there there isn't sufficient information to verify a claim uh, and to sort of know where those gaps are. Uh, and, you know, there are instances where 
perhaps something was not advertised or marketed in the best way, uh, but perhaps there is data and that can be used to uh, you know, ward off a lawsuit. We've seen plaintiffs sort of approach companies and, and ask for substantiation before uh, engaging in litigation. And so that certainly you know, can, can be useful and, and useful again to inform um, the, the marketing and advertising uh, of the claims. From a defensive strategy, obviously, data plays a huge role in terms of holding plaintiffs to a burden of proof and being able to uh, perhaps exit a lawsuit um, at the summary judgment stage. And so um, having that information and working with third parties, um, experts if needed, necessary, depending on, on sort of uh, what data is necessary, are, are useful tools in a toolkit and, and certainly not um, an area that I think a company should look to short circuit. Absolutely. And, and now it, there's a whole new area, I think, of, you know, with audits of um, that data and, you know, having a third party review, which is sort of the next stage and the next level that I know a lot of our clients are are working towards. So, so as we talked about a little bit, there are just a plethora of cases out there on greenwashing. I think every day there is a new opinion or, um, some kind of new filing that makes you wonder how broad and deep these claims are going to go. Can you give an example of maybe a few cases of recent decisions, et cetera, and maybe if there are any that you're watching for precedents to give us a little bit of guidance of how to prevent these claims going forward? Yeah, so we're seeing cases uh, virtually in, in almost every industry. The utilities cases, um, I thought were particularly interesting, I think just given also kind of where the, the country is uh, with a lot of uh, federal money being allocated for transition to uh, clean energy. And, and we're seeing obviously traditional fossil fuel companies trying to make that turn. And so there have been a number of cases against utilities for the advertising and marketing of their services through things like uh, customer bills, right? And so um, I, I think that is a is an interesting area to watch. I think we're still waiting on some rulings um, in that sector. Seeing a lot of litigation on the circular economy and plastics, and I think that that is. Um, it's not surprising given sort of where the climate change litigation is heading and, and seeing sort of greenwashing being a subset of the climate change litigation. So a lot of litigation on sort of the recyclability of plastics and the advertising and marketing of products as being recyclable. We're also seeing cases make their own foodstuffs and, and market them um, are also susceptible or have risk uh, for greenwashing as, as um, they make environmental benefit claims for those products as well. And so there were a recent number of cases around dolphins and fishing re regarding tuna and the, the marketing um, of statements in relation um, to tuna. We're also seeing a lot of state attorney generals take action, um, particularly against oil companies as well, for uh, environmental benefit statements and claims made to consumers. So, and, and fashion, I, I can't leave out fashion. So a lot of uh, litigation, again, um, in the context of sort of what does re recycled plastic or um, plastics in the uh, fast fashion industry, um, uh, you know, how can they be marketed or advertised? What's misleading? And can be and can fast fashions really be sustainable? So it's it's a wide, I think, gamut of, of suits. I've been tracking, I think, a lot of the motions to dismiss 
um, on these lawsuits to see if we can get some more law to sort of inform where things where things are headed. We are seeing a lot of motions to dismiss in the 12b6 context. So defendants saying that the plaintiffs essentially have failed to state a claim. Courts generally are saying that uh, statements that are aspirational in nature are not a violation of, of state Consumer Protection Act laws. And so if a company is saying in its statements it hopes to be carbon neutral by a specific date, um, that's not a considered specific claim. And so um, courts have dismissed complaints, um, sort of alleging greenwashing in that context. We're also seeing courts dismiss suits where perhaps the statement or claim is not tied to a specific product. And so typically under the State Consumer Protection Act statute, you're going to have to allege some product or service um, was marketed in a deceptive or misleading fashion. And so you have to be able to tie that statement to a product. Um, and oftentimes companies have not done that in their sustainability report or in their advertising uh, or marketing. And so defendants rightfully so have filed motions to dismiss um, on that basis and have been successful. Um, we're seeing also some interesting issues with uh, regard to the uh, amount in controversy requirement. A lot of uh, corporate defendants particularly have sought to remove uh, greenwashing cases filed in state court. They've tried, to, they've tried to remove them to federal court. And so typically they've alleged that they would satisfy the federal amount in controversy requirement um, because, for example, uh, the, the um, remediation of the wrong plaintiffs have alleged would require more than $75,000 to fix. And uh, courts have um, relied on precedent that says that you cannot um, basically aggregate um, distinct and separate claims in order to satisfy the amount and controversy requirement. And so traditionally, um, we're seeing cases kick back to the state court because um, that criteria cannot, usually it's an, an impossible to meet in most, most instances, and particularly in cases where you may have a uh, public interest group suing on behalf of uh, plaintiffs in a, in a general jurisdiction, um, having to meet that amount in controversy requirement for each plaintiff in the state of Maryland, for example, would be very difficult, uh, if not impossible to meet. We're also seeing um, lots of courts cite uh, the Green Guides, and I know we'll talk more about the FTC and the Green Guides uh, later on, but uh, we're seeing uh, lots of courts cite them in uh, their rulings and you know, reestablishing that the Green Guides are the sort of preeminent um, federal interpretive guidance on this issue. And so um, I think that's very instructive and, and will continue. And so that should be um, looked at very closely, obviously, by corporate defendants looking to mitigate uh, against those claims. And we've I, seen I think before I, I think one thing I just want to emphasize before we, we talk a little bit further about the litigation is just you know, a lot of the decisions that you're talking about and things that have been um, like the claims that have been filed historically were consumer based. Right. And a lot of them were food related or clothing related and all of that. One of the ones that I found most interesting was the Keurig case that, you know, the, whether the pods were actually truly recyclable and believe it or not, a court actually um you know the the class was certified there and then the um you know defendants settled so we don't want, we'll never know what would have happened there but what i think is important to put an explanation point on is you're also talking about utilities and you're talking about you know aerospace and auto and 
and things that are not your typical consumer products where these claims are going to be filed if they're not filed already, especially if the SEC rule comes out and especially in um, a situation where they might not be filed by a consumer class action like we've seen in the past, they could be filed by shareholders or other stakeholders. So um, I just I thought that you you were kind of giving such a lovely, broad um, view of the claims that it was really worth just emphasizing that even though some of these decisions are based on um you know, food and products and brands, companies in other industries really need to be looking at the green guides, looking at these decisions and and finding some instructions there as well. Does that yeah, sound absolutely. right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I guess the other example, uh, and I think relates to uh, utility again, um, right. that, you know, a, a court saying that sort of this utility had, had marketed itself as the nation's greenest utility. And, you know, who knows what that really means. <laughs> um, but the court said there that sort of general subjective unverified unverifiable claims are just mere puffery and sort of allowed um, the the motion to dismiss to proceed on that basis and, and an appellate court, a state appellate court, uh, affirmed the decision. Um, so that's impressive because I, I would counsel against that if that was our client. <laughs> certainly, yes, very very risky. But I, I think that the that the the issue here, particularly where you know we have cases you know getting booted from from federal court to state court because of the amount and controversy requirement, is that we're having now to build the law from a patchwork of different state courts. And so, what does that mean in terms of predictability, right? And perhaps. Um, in some months, we'll maybe have a, a better body of uh, federal law developed on on these areas. Whether that... we like it or not, we probably right, exactly. will. That's for sure. But you mentioned the FTC Green Guide. So explain for those that aren't familiar with them, um, what they're about and why this 2023 is probably a big year to keep your eye on those. Sure. So uh, the FTC uh, is the you know federal agency sort of tasked with the oversight of um, the marketing and advertising uh, of products. And so um, in 1992, pursuant to Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act, the FTC issued what later became known as the Green Guides. And so the Green Guides are the FTC's interpretive guidance intended to help companies and consumers as well understand um, how their environmental benefit claims are sort of perceived in the marketplace. And so for each specific claim covered, the green guides explain how a reasonable consumer would interpret the claim and provide some basic um, elements necessary to substantiate a claim and present alternative qualifications that may be considered non-deceptive. And so although the green guides are not law regulation, the FTC does have uh, the ability to bring or initiate enforcement proceedings against violators of them and can provide an administrative hearing to do so. Violators can face fines. We've seen, I think it was last year, we had some of the, the biggest fines ever issued by the FTC. But since 2012, I think we've had close to about 40 enforcement actions. And so the issue here is that the Green Guides were last updated in 2012, which is quite uh, some time ago, uh, particularly in this space where we have better science um, and we've had an uptick in lawsuits with uh, consumers, uh, I think, really demanding more accountability and more transparency. Um, and the green guides have not sort of kept pace with that. So uh, last year, end of last year, the FTC issued a notice of its intention to revise the guides. 
the FTC currently is seeking comment um, on 19 general issues sort of related to the efficacy of the guides, their use, um, wanting feedback on uh, the difficulty or burden with compliance. They've also mentioned the possibility of initiating a rulemaking to give the guides a force of law, and the rulemaking would there allow the FTC to refer cases to DOJ for prosecution. The meatier and sort of sexier portion of the notice seeks comment on 12 specific claims, which includes sort of the hot button areas where we're seeing a lot of litigation. So on things like recyclability, sustainability, the derivative claims like carbon zero, net um, net zero, carbon neutral, low carbon or carbon negative. And if, you know, if the FTC issues the rulemaking, you know, we'll see um, obviously plaintiffs have um, now a civil cause of action and it will, you know, undoubtedly, even if it if the FTC doesn't issue the rulemaking, the guide certainly will still remain um, as the leading sort of interpretive guidance on greenwashing um, from a federal perspective. I'm yeah, I mean, when those come that- out, I, 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 in-house lawyers, not only do they need to read and memorize them, but they need to share them with their sustainability team, their comms team, their ESG folks anyone that is drafting or putting out any kind of forward-facing information because that, you know, with the mandates of the SEC compiled with the guidance of the FTC, trying to integrate the two is going to be a challenge. And I think there's going to be a lot of so-called experts on that, but really just reading them and understanding them is probably going to be the best thing. So, but I, my, I don't know, what do you predict, maybe the end of the year on that, even to get a first draft? Because if they're, the comment period was extended, I think. Yes. Yeah, so the comment period was recently extended to April 24th. I'm actually predicting that, I, that the courts are going to move faster in this area. I think that um, typically it takes about two years uh, from comment um, to actually having new guides. Um, and you mean the we, FTC? I think you said the courts. The FTC is going to move quicker here. I'm actually thinking that the courts will, because we have so many cases that are pending Ah, and are further along. I think we're going to get some more decisions that are going to sort of inform where the law is moving. Um, I think the FTC could take potentially about two years to uh, issue revised guidance, which is a long time, particularly in this space when we see how quickly things are moving and shifting, even on a a day-to-day basis. I also think that aside from you know, sort of the the SEC, FTC uh, regulatory action, um, you also have to look at what the states are doing. And so there have been a number of states that have passed state laws that directly expressly state that a violation of the green federal green guides or, or marketing your product uh, in nonconformity with them is a violation of the state's Consumer Protection Act. And so California did this, Maine did this. Um, and so you have to uh, really look in, in several places to make sure uh, that you're conforming with the laws, which is why, um, hence rec- my recommendation, you consult a lawyer uh, to make sure your ducks in a row before you take action. Yeah, stacking things up and starting at the state level is hard, especially when you're a, likely a global cor- corporation operating in potentially a number of states, but maybe distributing products and in others, and it it gets to be a complex framework. So um, before we wind up today, time always goes so fast on these. What would you, what would you say are maybe the top two things you're waiting to play out in this greenwashing space as we ride this ESG wave? Yeah. So um, one thing I'm particularly interested is, um, 
obviously the the IRA, and so we're 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 now uh, getting a lot of uh, guidance on the Inflation Reduction Act. I refer to it as the IRA. Um, uh, we're getting a lot of guidance on sort of how those federal monies are going to be deployed, and so a big part of that spending uh, is going to be allocated for clean energy um, and we see that industries that traditionally use fossil fuels are going to have to make that shift. And there's going to be an increased demand for things like critical minerals as part of that transition. And so the question becomes sort of how do those traditional fossil fuel companies go green? And I, I think as we see more money for projects and project development, I think there's going to be a rash of new litigation in that sector as, as companies are sort of competing for those federal dollars and wanting to market uh, and advertise their their products or services as green. The second thing that that I, I think is particularly interesting, um, and I'm I'm looking forward to the development of, uh, is case law on the intersection of environmental justice and greenwashing. Uh, greenwashing for me is both the E S and G and ESG, and so that means your your um, ESG should be intersectional uh, and should include environmental justice considerations. And so again, as more federal money are, monies are deployed to EJ communities and projects begin to develop, I think we're going to start to see more lawsuits where communities or indigenous populations are alleging that a product perhaps was marketed in a way that was misleading uh, or a project has EJ concerns because it affects livelihood or, or communities historic uh, enjoyment, for example, of a river or some other area. Um, and so I'm expecting to see um, more case law that sort of combines greenwashing, environmental justice considerations, and, and nuisance claims as well. Yeah, that that is going to be intersectionality. So one way to look at that, it, it is um, that I, I think, as you and I've talked about, environmental justice is a very complex area in and of itself. And when you weave these all together it really becomes um, essential to be strategic, thoughtful, and intentional in all that you're doing, you know, all, our, all of our clients and, and um, companies are doing here in this space. So thank you so much for your incredible insights. I feel like I learned a lot about greenwashing and, you know, we've come a long way since the Save the Tall movement, that is for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, and we're certainly not going to Vegas to, to, to bet when the SEC or the FTC is going to get their final rulings out. But um, so more to come. We'll have a part two when there's some additional information and have Tanya back. But thank you for listening to the Environmental Laws podcast with Thompson Hine. I hope that you have found the information shared during today's program valuable. We welcome your questions about today's topic, as well as your suggestions for future programs. You can email me at Heidi.Friedman at ThompsonHine.com. If you would like to learn more about Thompson Hines Environmental Group, please visit our website at ThompsonHine.com. With approximately 400 lawyers in eight offices, Thompson Hine is a full-service business law firm recognized for innovation and client service. Our smart path approach provides clients with services that are predictable, efficient, and aligned with their short and long-term strategic goals. This podcast is for informational purposes only, provides general information, and not legal advice or opinions regarding specific facts. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast without permission. Thank you, and have a great day. <music>